I'm Christian Schiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to another Chinchilla Squeaks with me, Chris Chinchilla. As always, it would be strange if it wasn't really, wouldn't it? My subjects this week are Simon Wistow of Fastly and Christian Nielsen of Bevart. Now, here's my subtle link. Fastly, you possibly have heard of them. You've definitely experienced their work. They preserve the connectivity and, and relative speed of the internet. They keep it going. Bevart... They do the same for cultural heritage in museums. There we go. I told you it was a very subtle connection. Simon's interview was recorded at Web Summit and Christian's at Slush. So still two interviews from last year. Slowly getting towards the end of that pile. There's been a lot. And coming up soon is KubeCon in Paris in just over a month. So just as I'm emptying the, the, the hopper, I'll be adding a lot more into it. So there we go. And um, then I'll be back after those two interviews with a few small updates from me. So enjoy those. And before I get stuck into them, here's a few words from sponsors. And now I'm joined by Simon Wistow of Fastly. Fastly is a name that probably lots of tech podcasts hear, but I thought I would actually speak to someone from them as opposed to just an advert. So, so for someone who hasn't heard of Fastly or isn't quite sure what it is. What What is Fastly as a product and a service? So we are an edge cloud platform, which sounds like a lot of buzzwords, but basically we are a globally distributed network that does CDN, security, real-time content delivery, analytics, all those kind of things, uh, all integrated into one platform, which is spread all over the world. And in some respects, you you say the, the kind of edge buzzword, but I think you've probably been doing that since before it became yeah. a buzzword in some <laughs> respects. So what is the history of the company? So we founded about 12 years ago, and it was uh, back in 2010, 2011 is when we, we kind of had the idea and then started building it. Um, and it was kind of originally, the original genesis of the idea was me and my co-founders were complaining about the state of CDNs at the time. Like the dominant player was, is still Akamai. Akamai is very much rooted in its 1998, like origin roots around how the web was built then. Not, couldn't do, couldn't cache dynamic content. Like deploys of new configs took hours. Updating config took an hour. You got your logs FTP to you once every 24 hours. You did your config via XML, but then you had to have your, you know, you had to have your account rep like go and look over and make sure it was okay. It was basically a nightmare. Like, and this was not the way that we built websites. Yeah. And my co-founder was CTO of Wikia, which is sort of now fandom, the sort of commercial offshoot of Wikipedia. So they had people like Wow Wiki, which is the World of Warcraft Wiki, and Muppetpedia, and Wikipedia, which was the Star Wars Wiki. And you know, when a new World of Warcraft expansion came out, when a new Marvel movie came out, when a new Star Wars movie came out, a lot of user-generated content that was changing really, really rapidly. Yeah. And I was at a company, I was at Zendesk, I was really early at Zendesk, and Zendesk is all you know inherently user-generated content. And it was, we were realizing that the, the CDNs were a black box that you just threw content into and you had no idea what was going on. And if anything broke, they were incredibly difficult to fix. 
And so we started brainstorming, like, what would a better CDN look like? And, you know, obviously it has to cache dynamic content. Obviously it has to be updated on demand rather than time-based expiration. Okay, well, if you're going to put dynamic content up there, well, you need to put code up there because you need to be able to make decisions at the edge about cookies, about load balancing, about failover, about paywalls, things like that. Because if you have to go back to the origin to go and make those decisions, then there's no point having a CDN. Okay, well, if you're going to have code up there, well, then you need real-time logs. Well, not least because if you're going to be putting your front page of your newspaper up there, you really want to have real-time logs and stats to see what's going on. But also you need to be able to diagnose stuff. And if, you, if you're going to be putting code up there, you need to be able to make changes in seconds, not in eight hours. And then it, but then there was that, that light bulb moment as we were kind of planning about it. So, well, if you can put some code up there, why don't you put more? Why flip it around? Like, what can't you put up there? And there's obviously some stuff you don't want to do in an edge computing environment. You don't want to train large language models or something like that. You don't want to... But there's a lot of other stuff that you can move up there. And then suddenly, that means you've got this instantly scalable platform that you you don't have to think about availability zones. You don't have to think about, like, spinning new machines up or doing reserved instances or anything. It's just there. And it's as close to the users as possible. And then sort of that idea evolved. And it's like, well, what else do you want to do out there? Well, you probably want to do security. Like the idea of, you know, the old idea of getting a barracuda box and sitting it in your data center. It's a dude, yeah, 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 there was a blast from the past. Because the idea of sticking up, buying a box, a really expensive quarter million dollar box and sticking in your data center to protect you against DDoS seems laughably out of date now. Like obviously you want to block the DDoS as far, as close to the user as possible. You want to, block, you want to do WAF there as well. You want to do bot detection. You want to stop stuff as soon as possible before it gets into your network and consumes your resources and so that's what we've been saying we we built it we built the edge computing platform 12 years ago we sort of launched as a cdm but secretly we were really an edge computing platform it's just the, the market wasn't quite ready for it and you know so now we have this uh, we have this wasm based web assembly based approach you can run anything can generate wasm can run on top of our system it's completely secure it's incredibly fast we built a proprietary engine that has a cold start time of 500 microseconds so yeah it's you know we've built this thing that and we built this platform and we build our platform on our platform and what we really want to get to the point is where anybody can build entire businesses if they want to like they you know some of the largest brands in the world run entire subsystems through us and so that's that's kind of the that's the the sort of thrilling thing about it. it's like yeah there's a lot of things we, places we could go i'd like i'd like to stay in the past for a little bit longer if well not necessarily the past but maybe the 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 beginnings everything you described sounds very complicated uh, and a lot of people sort of get to a point where they think they might need the uses of a of a of a cdn of some description so from from the first steps how easy is it for an application or an infrastructure developer to integrate something like fastly into there is it very one click is there a lot of a lot of customization needed you know how can you configure all these options as someone who thinks they need this so there are, the onboarding process is actually really easy. You know, we just need whatever domain name you want us to respond to and whatever the name of your origin server is. I think after that, it's almost infinitely customizable. Yeah. Uh, and that is both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Like, it, it, you know, sort of where we're seen as like kind of a Swiss army chainsaw of, of, of edge computing platforms. And that, that's been great up until now. Like our customers are incredibly technical. You have people like GitHub, you have people like Reddit, New York Times, and they've been fine with that. 
What we have started doing over the last year, we bought a couple of different companies. We bought Glitch, the sort of web-based IDE. Long-term, they were long-term, like everybody that was a long-term friend. We started partnering because Glitch has seen its unbelievably easy to use. I mean, argue if I said it's the easiest to use web-based IDE, some people might disagree with me, but nobody thinks I'm stupid for saying that idea. It's like, it's, it's definitely got a reputation. But there is this sensation that people need to graduate off Glitch. Meanwhile, we've got, a, we've got a reputation as being incredibly powerful, but maybe a little bit intimidating. And so we started partnering with them. And then at some point we just thought, well, why partner? Why not join together? So starting about a year ago, we really started looking at all these like kind of different features and we became a multi-product company. We bought Signal Sciences, big security company, and they, they're a multi-product company. We bought Fanout, who are an incredible real-time web communication platform that allows you to do WebSockets without having to run a WebSocket server. We had all these different, we had all these different features and we realized we really need to rethink the way that we, we do stuff. So we're relatively easy to use at the moment, but we want to make it easier and we want to integrate the platform together. So that's been the big, that's been the big focus for the last year. Just, I don't know if this is a dumb question, but from a lot of what you've said, when does a company like Fastly that is providing things on, you know, the, the entry and exit points of the internet, you start to sound a lot like a, a cloud provider. I mean, <laughs> when does one become the other? I think it's a blurred line, you know, and obviously Amazon's got CloudFront. So, you know, they're sort of stepping into our, our side and, you know, we've got, we've got an edge key value store. So like, well, you know, yeah, we, we're starting to look like a cloud provider. We work with and partner with every single one of the major cloud providers. And I think what we've been seeing is we're not so much competing against them. And I know this probably sounds like a PR line. We're not so much competing against them as augmenting them. Yeah. You know, people want multi-cloud, multi-region. The central clouds are kind of necessarily these big data centers, very sort of centrally located, whereas we are much more dis geographically distributed. We're sort of smaller and lower drag. Yeah. And we sort of augment people's um, architectures. We work we have great relationships with all the cloud providers and we work, the, I, I don't know what percentage, but I'd say a substantial proportion of our customers are based on the cloud, just based on the demographic we're doing. I, I couldn't tell you what the percentage was off the top of my head, but I've got to guess it's high. And so we have these these connections and we, you know, we, and we integrate really tightly with them. Like we can stream logs into S3 or the, you know, Amazon real-time PubSub or Kinesis, into Kinesis, Google PubSub. I think we were one of the first people to have a data connector into, into the Azure data lake. So we work really, really closely with them. But there is a blurring of the line, but I think it's kind of an augmentation rather than a competing with. And some of the reasons people might do that is the redundancy aspect as well. I feel like, I don't feel like I've heard of any of these sort of major outages caused by Fastly going down <laughs> that some other competitors have had. So that, that cringe may be said I'm wrong, but how do you at least try to prevent this? You know, being this major entry and exit point does mean people are very annoyed when you have a problem. So how do you actually keep on top of this? So we did, uh, it's lovely that you didn't think of this, but about two- other people that yeah. mentioned. Maybe it's a reputation. <laughs> we, 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 we have had, in the sort of 12, 13 years been around, we have had one major outage. And it was, it was two years ago, and it was 30 or 40 minutes, I think, was like, and what was interesting was it would have been front page news, apart from the number of the world's newspapers were running on top of us and so actually the news didn't get out but we did make the bbc quiz of the year which made my mum very proud but the you know sort of that was we discovered the outage really really quickly it was a bug that had been introduced months before and just 
weird circumstances tickled it. And, you know, so we ran our, our, our regular incident response and we actually found the bug really, really quickly, but we have a, we yeah. try and take a measured approach rather, you know, there is, there is always the danger that if you rush into a fix, you're going to make things worse. But that was, we'd already started our WebAssembly based transformation. WebAssembly has only been around a few okay. years. So when we saw it, we immediately recognized that this was something that could stop a whole class of bugs. And so what we, what we know because we've, we're all operators, we've all been around, is bugs can happen to anybody. Now, what was weird was the month, the same month we had the outage, I think two of our competitors had massive... Also, two years ago was interesting times. So yeah, I think was... possibly more people are paying attention to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, did something happen two years ago? And it's, it, these, you know, there's a, a whole movement, Hugops, like, which is everybody recognizes that everybody has outages. Yeah. Like, there is no, no system is 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 floor free so you know whenever our whenever our you know we've got these competitors but we know a lot of people at these competitors it's a very very small world of people who run these kind of networks so you know always always support we get support from them if we've you know if we when we had the issue but one of the things we realized okay well this new technology if we recognize there's always going to be bugs because people are human, what technologies can we bring that mitigates against those bugs? So that was that was when we really accelerated our, yeah. our, WASM, our WASM program. On that, I mean, the WASM is becoming relatively, I don't want to say mature, but established and widespread at this stage. I was actually talking about this in the last interview where it sort of bubbled under the surface and is rapidly becoming quite widely adopted, but without stupid hype which yeah. is kind of nice it's actually a better more sustainable way of a new technology rolling out but how do you decide with a business like yours where everything has to be very solid otherwise people would be very annoyed how do you decide that a new technology is a right fit <laughs> we hammer it really really hard and we have some really really smart people when mozilla did layoffs we hired a lot of the mozilla team <laughs> including laura thompson who is long-term mozilla superstar and yeah it's sort of it, you, you talked about difficult problems like we we are really lucky that we you know we need world-class engineers and we have to compete against people like google and amazon and meta who are offering incredible salaries hot and cold running massages like seven meals a day they'll do your dry cleaning cut your hair yeah but but when we were we so we had to have a company where a you get to work on interesting problems and you get to have an outside influence but also we're seen as good people so we hire these people they hammer these things and we feel re- relatively confident that these these technologies have been tested we run stuff in we we stealth deploy stuff we run mirror traffic through we try everything we can to try and make sure that that everything stays everything stays kind of stable because yeah we, we people are running their entire websites for us like it's, it's a huge amount of trust and it's actually you know when we you know when we're streaming the super bowl when we're you know sort of like big new TV series start streaming yeah. its premiere like it's actually you know it's kind of a little bit of a thrill that sort of you know I'll be at a Super Bowl party as a Brit like not really understanding what's going on but I'll be glued to our you know glued to our internal channel and glued to our, our Travis screens and it's it's kind of cool to see like this that we're watching on TV is running through it's probably, it's probably more interesting than the game so. <laughs> <laughs> never really got a record no comment um, <laughs> I'm much more into Australian football I spend a lot of time oh, in Australia so, but it's much smaller much smaller um, are there certain things you know certain approaches you have to take as a company to 
you know, you know, like you can't have a company offsite or something like that because having everybody just unavailable is probably dangerous. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I remember in the early days between the founders, we had to be really careful about coordinating our flights. We couldn't all be on a flight at the same time, <laughs> let alone the same flight at the same time. We we now have people in countries yeah. all around the world, so we are we're really careful that we've got round the clock coverage. And we were lucky early on to have <laughs> weirdly got a lot of friends in incident management. There's there's an O'Reilly book on incident management came out of get together happened at Arthur, my co-founder's apartment with us, some people from Facebook, some people from Amazon. It was organised by Jesse Robbins, who was the master of disaster at Amazon, and then ran Opscode's chef and is now a VC. But he's also a firefighter. He's also the he was for a long time the head firefighter at Blackrock City Fire Department which is oh, the okay. Burning Man Fireman but he was yeah no no he was no he's a, he was a literal he was a literal firefighter and so he brought together a bunch of first responders and a bunch of tech people and was like what can they learn from each other and it turns out the firefighters can learn nothing from the tech people but the tech people could learn a lot about incident response so we had that whole process and the sort of like all that built in right from the get go the book's really fascinating I really thoroughly recommend it I had a question prepared but you've, you've sent me off on a tangent. It actually reminds me of in, in Australia years ago, there was this random acts of kindness. And I think it was the year after the big fires in 2008. They had a competition between... Actually, now this is going to lead very nicely to my next question. Now I come to think of it. They, 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 had a, a, they bought on some of the SES, which is the emergency services who kind of deal with the bigger level stuff. And we're asking about how can you help us with the fire responses? And of course, all the engineers were like, we'll have maps and connected to this data source and that data source. And the firefighters like, in a gigantic bushfire, there's no internet. Now what are you going to do? I'm like, so anyway, so, and actually this is where, let's come back to Glitch and the, the acquisition because my main exposure to them is kind of the, the jams and things they run. So how are you going to use them? Is that for helping people create and maintain configuration, things like that, or is it something else? So people, like various people use Fassi in different ways. So there are some people who log in and use the UI. There are some people who use our Terraform provider. Some people use our command line interface, especially for the compute environment. And there are some people who are using it because it's embed the companies have embedded it, you know, so especially content providers and things like that. You know, you're a journalist and you hit publish on your on your story and you know, sort of mechanisms were in the background and it gets pushed through Fastly. So people use Fastly in different ways. What we wanted the glitch team for was that was another way and it was a very user-friendly way of getting in. And but also we wanted their expertise in building that kind of community. And so it was kind of a double whammy. And they needed a they they wanted to port their stuff to our our to our platform because that you know, sort of made things a lot more scalable and brought costs down. So it was kind of a, a win-win. Well, I uh, the glitch community is incredible. It's one of the best programming communities out there, and it, it's it kind of spun off from the same same stable as the Stack Overflow people. And so, which is also an incredible programming community. It's almost like, but it's the glitch community. It's almost like if you could get an answer on Stack Overflow and then hit run and see it working. And so. That has obvious benefits for us. So at the moment, we want people to experiment. And, you know, the talk I gave at Web Summit was a lot about opening up the web again, like making it much more sort of democratizing it, opening it up again, making it much easier for people to get started. And Glitch was a huge inspiration for that. Like, mm -hmm. but, And so we want that. 
but we don't want to disrupt the glitch community. The glitch community is a jewel. It's something that should be protected. So there's a bunch of different ways working on it, but there's those are the main ones. And we mentioned Edge as a buzzword. Sort of, you've been around it a lot longer. When we come to what a lot of people sort of mean by the Edge these days, there's IoT connected devices and things like that. Is there anything specifically you've had to do different to accommodate those in terms of access or rollout or things like that, or more ability to work sort of disconnected in times like that? Is, is something that has changed in your business in the past few years because of that? So Steve O'Grady, who's an analyst at Redmonk, wrote a really good paper was about, or a really good article about why the edge doesn't mean what you think it is. And, and we, we've known this. We've always been really open about the fact that the edge means different things to different people. You know, if you're, I remember meeting somebody who worked for a huge auto parts chain. And for them, the edge was the 3D printer that sits in, in their workshops and 3D prints, 3D prints parts on demand. You know, if you're a retail store, you might have your POS system as the edge. And AT&T was trying to say the edge was 5G nodules on top of phone poles and stuff like that. For everybody, it's different. It just means as close to the user as possible. And and the fact that it's like that so many different industries want the same thing, but with their own specific flavor, I think shows how powerful the concept is. It's a bit like how, like, you know, there's some meme going around about how like crabs have evolved five or six different times or something like that. Nature seems to want to evolve towards having crabs. I think, like, so weird tangent. You didn't think you're going to be talking about crabs in a, but the, for us, we've, we've always been competing. We're edge computing for the web. And so, so, that doesn't mean that other people's yeah what's weird yeah well but what's weird is we do talk to car manufacturers we do talk to iot devices we or it manufacturers we have a couple of different car companies who do stuff through us we have to talk to people in very large retail companies who have our nodes in their stores you know we're talking to cruise ships and things like that so spacex we're you know sort of <laughs> you know it's like i have a dream of someday having having a pop map having a, a sine wave with one of our pops going through in low earth orbit that one day that that dream will come true and you be very proud it's so slow <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so the edge i think the edge means a lot of things yeah. to different people they for us it's obviously the, the edge of the web or the edge of the internet close to the user as possible but they actually do start to blur over a little bit which if you forgive the appalling pun, but I, I can't think of anything better. You seem to move quite fast. <laughs> so I can't think of anything better. And lots of changes in the past few years. Whatever you are happy to mention, what's kind of next in the next six months to twelve years? Twelve years, six months to twelve months <laughs> that you that you you do have planned, or you think you may need to plan for. You mentioned LLMs and things like that. Is that something, for example? Like, is there anything you you are planning to, or think you need to plan for in the next few months to a couple of years? Yeah, I mean the big the big initiative we're working on at the moment is the is is this platform unification yeah and that is tr trying to trying to make it as easy as possible for our customers to use as much of our products as possible and not in a kind of weird salesy way it's just like it seems weird to make it difficult to use it so that's the big initiative i think for the next sort of quarter two quarters yeah, we have a new relative new ceo todd nightingale he was the ceo of meraki and then became like head of sort of networking products at cisco he joined about a year ago it has been 
really really great having him like he has this perspective on the industry which is incredible but also he's a massive nerd like his thesis paper on like tcp congestion his thesis on tcp congestion algorithms he's he's a massive nerd it's great and it's been really great having that new energy in the company especially sort of coming out of covid i know like sort of coming out of the sort of the worst of covid and the lockdowns like there's this new energy in the company and it's it's you know we didn't have any layoffs and so it really really feels like an exciting time other big initiatives were we're working on a lot of security stuff coming security security is never going away like and the web is becoming more and more the sort of web threats becoming more and more sophisticated so we're always working on that and then you you mentioned ai and ml obviously that's a question that I, I feel like if you play Buzzword, if you play, if you did a shot every time it was mentioned in an earnings call in the last, like, kind of... It's actually the years. first time I brought it up in an interview so far, which is good. I'm very pleased. <laughs> okay. You, you, yeah, it's okay. If you, I think it was, there was an NVIDIA, there was an NVIDIA earnings call where they mentioned it after the guy. But they, you know, every single earnings call for the last six months, I think, like, yeah. every company's had this question. We're, we're sort of, we're, we, we have had, we've been using... Uh, machine learning and, and AI internally for network infrastructure, like anomaly detection, even inside our image optimization app products. It, it does. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Our cu- what we're finding is we are probably not the right place to, to have these massive models, the, the giga models. But I think in, in a bunch of talks here at Web Summit, a lot of people talked about smaller, more specialized models are definitely the trend. Yep. And we're, again, we're not the right place to go and train those models, but we're a really, really good place to go run those models. Yeah. And we, because we're involved in a lot of WASM standards, we're working on WASI-NN, which stands for Neural Networks. It's supposed to be a standard for transparently running large language models and on, on the edge. We're really heavily involved with that. And, you know, we've already got customers who are running large language models for threat detection, for anomaly detection, for a whole bunch of different reasons. I think what's going to be kind of interesting is you have WAFs and Web, you know, WAPs and things like that. And they're supposed to, a lot of these are based on things like the trust wave rules and the OS rules, and they're very pattern-based. And they're, they're meant to protect you having malicious queries against your database. We've been running databases on the web for 25 years longer. We've got a lot of expertise. It is relatively cheap to run a database query. It is not cheap to run an LLM query. And by definition... The, the input coming in is is very freeform, it's free text. So not great for pattern recognition. What's great about us is uh, sort of tooting our own horn a little bit. Signal Sciences is the 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 web application security company we bought a couple of years ago, and who we'd been working with for a long time. We knew them when they were at Etsy, so they, they you know we knew them. They came up with a completely different approach, which was instead of having these patterns, they have signals, as the name suggests, kind of actually kind of very similar to how sort of modern search engines work. And you know you think of that as the analogy I've been saying is you can imagine if you're walking down the street and there's somebody wearing a hoodie that's not immediately a threat because they could be cold and if somebody's got a crowbar they could just be trying to lift open a crate and if somebody knocks on your door that is not necessarily a threat it could be delivery it could be like somebody asking for directions but if somebody knocks on your door wearing a hoodie and carrying a crowbar that's a big threat so having different signals is a really i know it's a bit of a weird metaphor um uh, yeah it could be but at that point you're going to be on a little bit of higher alert and so i think the six i approach is going to be uh, amazing for we've already seen success in this like for detecting kind of these more like kind of nebulous sort of malicious queries so that's that's definitely stuff that's you know sort of that's that ai and, and ml are definitely on everybody's lips yeah. 
I mean, we don't have so long, really. It's kind of actually, yeah, we have no 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 time at all. But it's quite fascinating to think how much you cross like your business crosses over with so much that's going on, and you talk about AI, ML, and anomaly detection, and you think you know you're facing that all the time. Yeah, DDoS pre prevention is your biggest business, and you have to be really on top of what on earth is going on. And there's a lot of people trying to work against your businesses all the time. So, <laughs> so. It, it, it's it's a, it's been fascinating. You sort yeah. of get used to these. I mean, everything from nation state attacks yeah. to sort of internet connected light bulbs attacking you and stuff. But the the big problem, I think, one of the thing things now is especially with things like LOIC which is the low, low orbit ion cannon which was the sort of 4chan like DDoS <laughs> DDoS like kind of tool of these you know bot networks the, the big problem we have is that differentiating between somebody getting attacked and somebody having a really good day because they got mentioned by an influencer or they're having a sale is is really difficult and so what's great about it we have this breadth of of we we have this breadth of experience based on we can see what's happening on a substantial proportion of the web in real time and so we get all this information coming in and we can help essentially like we can help our customers help each other without breaking any kind of privacy or like kind of sharing any information we get this and we can sort of like the everybody gets the benefit of of everything just kind of cool but yeah it is sometimes scary when you see what's happening and you sort of become acutely aware that the internet is a very physical place not just a not just like a kind of theoretical web of lines like you become acutely aware when a submarine cable gets that gets cut or some yeah. some isp somewhere publishes bad bgp routes or yeah. something like that you you see these manifests we see hurricanes move up guys we can see we 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 see world events reflecting our traffic graphs it's kind of cool we have a whole internal web page with with like significant events like prince dying and stuff like that and and stuff we can see it reflecting our graphs it's kind of cool <laughs> nice thank you very much so, Christian Nielsen. Yes. Bev Art. Mm-hmm. Actually, I took an interest in this for a couple of different reasons. First, my university project was actually an application for a museum catalogue. All right, nice. Back in 2001. Okay. Done in horrible Java. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also dated an art historian for a few years. So I was kind of interested in a couple of things you're doing here. Mm. And also it's come up in the news a lot recently mm. about how, or A, museums are having to give back some things. Yep. But also criticisms that they haven't been looking after some of their collections and things yep. like that. So Bev Art is all about preserving cultural heritage. Yep. I can have some guesses mm. about what that might mean. Sure. Well, I can begin to say that I'm an art historian by education. That's my formal background. And as many of us who have knowledge with the museum sector knows, we, is that the technology usually doesn't, new technology usually doesn't spread to museums first. They often come to other industries who are considered to be more lucrative, more forward-leaning, and so on. So that has kind of led to, uh, how do you say it in English? Not a drag, but uh, like a delay. Okay. Delay like in, in technological uh, features uh, in that sector. And uh, that's a shame because there are so many new great things that uh, have come that can be really useful, helpful within the field of cultural heritage that uh, we're now trying to spread, that we're now trying to use. And one of them, and the thing we work the most with, is uh, of course the monitoring of the material well-being of the objects. So an old, fragile object can become damaged by several things. 
For example, you have temperature, which will expand and subtract a material. You have a relative humidity that will do it will dry out, for example, a painting. It will start cracking if it's too dry. And if it's too wet or damp, it will start to grow mold on it, right? So, so because of these things, and you have light and so on, which will bleach the materials. Yeah. So because of these environmental factors, everyone who works at a museum is very aware that they need to keep these measurements within a certain... You often see those little yes. things, wavy line. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> they, they look at graphs a lot, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And they try to make the graphs as stable as possible. You don't want a graph that's crazy like this. You want to control the climate somewhat, but yeah. So that's our advantage. We start with that. We start with uh, we start with monitoring the environment inside the museum. We use these really tiny IoT sensors that uh, are quite neat. You can hide them behind the painting. So for the sake of the recording, <laughs> mm -hmm. it looks like kind of a double size old school SIM card. Basically. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it, it is. And it, it weighs two grams and it's yeah. really, you can hide it almost anywhere. And that opens up for quite some new things inside a museum. For example, they don't want to show the, the, the goal of the exhibitions. When things are exhibited, mm. it's to have a, a great experience for the visitors, right? They don't want to show their technology. Yeah. They don't want to show their work tools. But in many museums around the world, if you look at the walls, you'll see like these old boxes standing out. So that's one of the things we do. We try to be uh, invisible. We try to be discreet so that the objects are in focus while also making sure that they have uh, the right conditions. So to keep it short, that's what we do. I mean, whilst uh, this is a very valid use case in museums, mm -hmm. I can imagine this would be useful in other situations. Is that just one you're starting with or is it one you really want to focus it's on? It's the one we really want to become best on. Because as you said, there are millions of uh, applications for this. For example, you could go within um, office monitoring, cold storage, uh, food, things like that. But that's not so interesting for us. We want to really become best at what we do because we're passionate about museums. It's like I said, it's my background originally. We share the same vision as our clients. We want to help them take care of their old collections so that next generations can have the chance to visit them as well. One of my best memories from my childhood was going uh, to every museum in Oslo with my father. He would bring me there. He was a sailor, so he was two weeks at uh, sea and two weeks at home. And he didn't have anything else to do when he was at home but to take me around to museums. And he would use these uh, experiences to really teach me about history, about life. He taught me about where we come from, styles, artists, so on like that. And I really want my kids to be able to do the same. And in order to do that, we make, need to make sure that the objects have the right conditions. So this device you showed me, mm. is that actually communicating with something? Has it got a yes, well, the, the one uh, that I showed you right here is a dummy version. Ah, okay. So there's nothing on the inside. But it's the exact same size. No, no, so it's, but it's the exact same size as the live yeah. one. That will transmit si signals wirelessly to what we call a cloud connector. Yeah. And that has its own SIM card. But it's really simple because the clients just need to branch the cloud connector to the electrical socket mm -hmm. and then it will automatically hook itself up to our cloud solution. So the only thing that our clients need to know how to do is to plug something into our yeah. electrical sockets. And where to place that. And where to place yeah, that, yeah. yeah. And they know that. So, I mean, it's a sector that is, I don't know, depends on the country, but yeah. that has varying levels of funding. 
Uh, You're right. But I can imagine that a lot of those old devices you see have been there for a while. Yeah. But, you know, spending nothing is still cheaper than spending something. Yes, but actually they are spending quite a bit on those old things because they are dependent on uh, service technicians Uh, coming around every so often, changing batteries. So it's effectively a subscription service, an old subscription service. Exactly, yeah. And that's expensive because many of these things are kind of, this might sound a bit uh, conspiratorial, but they are kind of built to not last and they're built to develop them and they want to sell calibration battery chains and of course also installation so they don't make them easy to install because all you need a certified technician to do that right and that's been the business model of these traditional companies they have their deals with the local electrician who has been trained in how to mount the system he spends five to six hours at the museum setting it up and charges them a lot of money for that but with today's technology, that's really not necessary. Mm. Things can go automatically. And I would imagine with something that size, I mean, if they wanted to, you could even start embedding those inside some items. As you well, sure, sure can, them. yes. Yeah. You can have it within a frame, mm. or you can have it within a transportation box. You can have it in a display case. A display case, as you know, is a closed environment, mm. right? Because of the object on the inside is really fragile. So the last thing you want to do is to open the glass casing, mm. right? But they have to with these old sensors, and they yeah shouldn't have to. What made you want to just do this in the first place? Well, it was it's my my background from the field, but also, so I'm an art historian, but I didn't just want to work with theory. I'm quite a practical person, and I like to build stuff. I love recruiting, building companies, things like that. So this is just a perfect match for me. I get to work in a field that I love yeah. with things that I love. Yeah. yeah. Do you, maybe you seem a random question, but, you know, we hear, I was listening actually something the other day, because there's this mm. ongoing controversy with the Elgin Marbles and the British. Yes, Union, yes. And they were talking about how they're somewhat damaged because they painted them with something in the past to yeah. preserve them. Yeah, yeah. Do you, like, <laughs> the, 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 where I'm getting at this is, do you think there's anything that people have been doing recently that... Mm. You know, by advancing the technology from what mm. they're using 10, 20 years ago, you're yeah. now discovering is what we should have been doing 10, 20 years ago. Oh, definitely. There are constantly advances in the conservation field, yeah. which is what they, they call it. They, as you said, use different things to treat materials, a glue being one of them that constantly changes as to what is considered to be great. But the, the field moves forward and they eliminate things that we used to do many times. And oftentimes, the old-fashioned way works the best. There are no uh, shortcuts to really take good care of things. But yeah, the the field keeps advancing, yeah. And have you rolled these out to any places yet? Oh, definitely. We were at 14 museums in Norway, and we recently had one installation in Cardiff in Wales, the National Museum, and in Amsterdam, Architecture Museum there as well. And I mean... How do you plan to, I mean, obviously you could scale this in terms of installations, Mm -hmm. but in terms of offering new things, Mm -hmm. you know, in a kind of, for a, for a a venture capital potentially, Mm -hmm. I'm glad you have to always keep growing. I'm glad you asked. What can you change and add? Many features. We can, for example, the, the things they use at museums right now. So, so the thing is monitoring temperature and relative humidity 
that's not difficult. That's been around for a long time. So the hardware we use, sure, it's it has a good battery life, it's accurate, it's small and so on. But that's just a measurement. The question is, what do you do with the data? How do you analyze it? How do you make sense of it? So we started out with simply showing the data. Mm -hmm. This is where it's at right now, so on, so on. Then you can build with historical data like we are doing right now. You can look at things in a longer timeline and you can also train machines to do this. And you can tailor the, the data to the material type that you are monitoring because different objects will have different preferences. For example, Elgin Marbles, the statue, will have different needs than the oil painting, mm -hmm. which needs to be more humid. So basically you can tailor the environment to the material that you're looking at. And that's what I mean by the technologies within this field at the moment. They are made for all kinds of different industries and they just happen to sell them to the museums as well. There aren't really any good companies that deliver this just for museums and cultural heritage. That's where we try to be our best and really have a narrow focus, develop what the uh, museums and the cultural heritage professionals need. And uh, that's, yeah, that's what we do. Probably not with any of your clients, because I would imagine if they were looking at something like this, they're reasonably caring. Yeah. But I can imagine you've possibly seen some real horror stories. <laughs> yeah. What's possibly one of the the worst examples of storage or preservation you've seen? Oh, there are plenty. And some of the... So what you see in the exhibition room, mm. that's usually up to snuff, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's what the public yeah. sees. Yeah. But uh, behind the closed doors, they have the storage facilities. <laughs> And uh, storage facilities are, to a varying degree, up to standard. And uh, oftentimes you can have leaks, you can have uh, floodings, you can have things like that. We just had a big, big flood in, in Norway. Mm -hmm. And many storage facilities were really threatened yeah. by this. But of course, luckily, the museums had really good uh, emergency plans. Yeah. So they were able to quickly get everything out the way. But these are constant threats to, and especially the storage facilities, because that's where 95% yeah. of the collections are. Yeah. yeah. And what's your, what's your favorite museum or gallery? Oh, there are so many great ones. Let's see, I have to give me one second. Well, I like architecture. The Architecture Museum in Oslo is good. The new national... Okay, I, I have to be biased and I have to showcase our home museums, of course. We just built the new national museum in Norway. That's great. I was there last week. They, it's a state-of-the-art building. They, they have really nice exhibitions there because they have a difficult task and it's basically they have all this stuff and what do you showcase, right? Yeah. But of course we have uh, some really, really good ones, smaller ones in Bergen as well. The Bergen City Museum, excellent. Really gives you a good understanding of the local customs and traditions and so on. So yeah. it's, it's really up to what the, what you prefer. It's interesting because you talk about up-to-date museums and you know there's been this love-hate relationship with technology museums yeah. because a lot of the interactive displays can be varying degrees of out of date very quickly or mm. not functioning most of the time. Definitely. Or kind of pointless. Yeah. The thing you said at the beginning about the technology should get out of the way of whatever the exception yeah. is. I mean, it depends. Obviously, in your space, mm. you're generally looking at preserving yeah. older items. Yeah. If it's a museum about something where no such thing exists in yeah. the universe or whatever, where there's yeah. really something to show, yeah. it's a bit different. I remember, actually, there's a gallery in um, Hobart in mm -hmm. Australia. Uh, I think it's 
it's fairly famous because it's run by a professional gambler and he just yeah. does what he likes. Okay. It's like going to a Bond villain's That's place. always fun, yeah. He didn't want to have signs on things. Mm -hmm. So this is like nearly 20, no, 15 years ago, I knew the guys who made, they made like a very early iPad that would, as you walked around, would trigger yeah. the description. But they were making it like 15 years ago, even before Beacons, because he <laughs> wanted the same thing. He didn't want technology in front of the art. Yeah. He wanted the art just to speak for itself. Mm -hmm. And yes, yeah, it's interesting because you, you can have this very much out of the way. So yeah. It's very small. But, Definitely, yeah. but also a fun story about that is that it's not just the old things yeah. Yeah, no, that, sure. that are really important. I was at a conference, conservation conference last week, yeah. where they talked about video installations yeah. and how sometimes they don't have so the tape recordings they can fade right and yeah, you can, sure. can lose the yeah. thing and then basically the art piece doesn't work yeah. so what do you do then do you digitalize it yeah sure you can do that but then you will lose the physical big yeah. box right that was perhaps placed by the artist in a particular way and in some of these video installations they were they were stacked like yeah. this the cables running all over the place but if you just were to replace all that with a computer screen well it would be quite boring wouldn't yeah. it right yeah. so digitizing to a format that no one can understand in 10 years this exactly that always fascinates me with digitization yeah just because it's a standard now mm. who knows <laughs> exactly who knows what it will be <laughs> Okay, updates from me. I don't have too much to add as I have been traveling. I was at FOSDEM running a dev room, which was as FOSDEM always is, crazy and wild. I'm actually uh, finishing. I've just submitted an article to a new outlet where I'll be covering FOSDEM and the other event I went to afterwards, which is State of OpenCon, Open UK's regular event and now basically a side event in London to FOSDEM in Brussels. So I conducted some interviews there, which will be released, who knows when, as I say, alongside this article I was working on for a new outlet about the state of European open source. So that should be published soon too. Those things aside, I have been plowing through final revisions of a book I'm working on, so that's been taking up a lot of time, and equally working on some short stories for a couple of competitions and collections. So I've been working on a lot of things, but they're not fully realized or out there yet. The podcast is now fully available on YouTube, which has actually been remarkably good. I've been getting a lot of comments on episodes I recorded years ago, which is kind of strange to send myself down memory lane into some of those. But it's actually helped my YouTube quite a lot. I wasn't expecting it. I was skeptical, but it's actually worked quite well. Thank you, YouTube, for recommending that. By the time this publishes, I should also have a blog post and a video about a small little Mac application I've been messing around with called WordCounter. And I have a couple of other things in progress. Staying put for at least the next month, so that gives me a little bit of time to catch up with some of those videos, including also I, I've recorded, but I'm editing and polishing and adding music to, original music to, a whole series of recordings from my next, actually my current flash fiction collection. Small Gregarious Fiction, volume two, is currently available on Amazon and Drive Through Fiction. And those uh, audio versions will be dripping out bit by bit. The physical print-on-demand Amazon book will take a little bit longer. Keep getting some annoying issues with it, but uh, it's, it's coming. <laughs> it is coming. I think that will do for now. Uh, I will definitely have some more episodes before then, but if you happen to be in Paris for KubeCon, 
then let me know or you can line up an interview or a conversation and I'll be back in one or two weeks with some more interviews. Until then, I have been Christian Schiller. Thank you very much for joining me. And as always, take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at christianchiller.com, where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, Join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.